0: Well, here we are looking at the book of Revelation again. I hear myself about 12 times out there bouncing around. Just pick one of those voices, the one you like the best. Yeah, some echo or something up there in the balcony. So is the balcony loud up there? Okay, it's the balcony. If you can just turn that down or something. All right, so I'll keep talking. That gives them something to play with. I forgot what I was saying, though. (laughs) I'm sure it was very important, whatever it was. Oh, well. We'll move past all that, and I'll just move to the next statement, which is turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. You might check on the balcony up there if there's a way to turn that down. Revelation 12, we are looking at verses 13 to 17 tonight, which means we'll finish the chapter, so let's ask the Lord's help with this. Father, we again thank you for the opportunity just together and to be here. We thank you for the privilege of studying your Word. Lord, thank you for putting it in our hearts, a love for Scripture. So many around us and people we know and interact with and work with, people in our own families don't love your truth. So we know that that love has something that has come from you, you've you've placed it there in our hearts, you've watered it, you've caused it to grow. So Lord, thank you for that. We find such joy in just discovering what Scripture says. So help us with that tonight, that discovery, and then help us also to uh, be able to uh, appreciate the the point and how you want us to live in light of what we learn. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, I do realize that we have already discussed uh, Satan's hatred of Israel. In our study of Revelation on Wednesday nights, we've said already a lot about it, and we will see this again tonight in our text. It's important because Satan's hatred of God's chosen people, Israel, is a key element <laughs> Of biblical history, first of all, but it's also a key element in understanding the future tribulation period, that span of time in which God's judgment on rebellious earth will be especially severe. It's that period of seven years right before the Lord returns to earth. The tribulation is about that. It's about God's Judgment of rebellious earth dwellers, as Revelation puts it, but the tribulation is also about Israel, and that is so important to understand the tribulation. In fact, it's very interesting that you don't find the church, the term ecclesia, you don't find it even mentioned in Revelation's discussion of the future uh, tribulation period, as far as the uh, what we find from chapter six at least onwards. But you do find Israel. You find Israel to be a major player, a major focus of the end times, and Satan's long-standing hatred of Israel will come to a head during that future seven-year period. I suppose we could even say that Satan was the originator of what we call uh, anti-Semitism. We've all heard that term the basic definition of antisemitism is hostility to, or prejudice towards, or discrimination against Jewish people. So, at the end of the day, it's just a fancy word for racism. This racism or antisemitism may be manifested in many ways. When you look at history, you can find expressions of hatred, and even today, expression of hatred of or discrimination against individual Jews. And you can find organized slaughters of entire Jewish communities. Now, obviously, this antisemitism is a terrible blight on human history. It is true that more than one group, more than one ethnic group in human history has experienced discrimination and hatred in severe ways. But if you look at history and over the centuries of it, there is no doubt that the Jews have faced more hatred and persecution than any other group. Now, we find the first examples of the nation of Israel suffering in the Old Testament They have suffered in a lot of ways, and of course, much of that suffering was chastisement from God as well, from God Himself. Israel was His chosen nation, and they're the only nation that can claim that, the only nation ever chosen by God to be His own, yet they rebelled against Him by following the sinful practices of the nations that were around them imbibing their religions, and so Scripture presents them as being guilty of spiritual adultery. Uh, One passage that tells us about God's need to chastise Israel is in 2 Kings. You can turn there if you want to. I'm going to read several verses out of 2 Kings chapter 17. I'll jump around a little bit, but 2 Kings 17, starting in verse 7. In that verse, it says, the sons of Israel." had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt. Then he goes on to say, and they had feared other gods. That's spiritual adultery. Verse 8, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. Verse 9, the sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Verse 12, they served idols. Verse 13, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all of his prophets, here's what he said through them, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers. Verse 14, however, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant which he made with their fathers and his warnings And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. 16, they forsook all the commandments of the Lord. It goes on to say they served Baal, Baal. Verse 18, so the Lord was very angry with Israel. I mean, that's just one passage where you find statements like that, of their sin against the God that had given them life. identity. But God, in His mercy and His grace, still sought to turn the nation away from their sin and their unbelief, turn them back to Him. He warned them repeatedly along the way of the consequences of their disobedience. So again, a lot of their suffering, no doubt, in biblical history was due to God's chastisement of them. Probably the most famous warning is in Deuteronomy 28, Verse 15 says this, if you do not obey the Lord your God to, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. If you've ever read through Deuteronomy 28, I'm sure you have, you, you find in that long section, verses 16 through 68, that with this specific list of all the kinds of uh, things that were going to happen to them if they disobeyed. So God warned them about that. In addition to warnings, then he chastised them. And part of that chastisement included God using the neighbors around them, those nations. Uh, Biblical history, these are important dates. We have to learn them and spit them out on a test somewhere in seminary. But 722 B.C., that's an important date. The northern kingdom, you know, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern ten tribes, the southern two tribes. The northern kingdom took the name Israel, southern kingdom Judah, The northern kingdom was conquered by her enemies, 722 B.C. And you fast forward, 586 B.C., the southern kingdom, Judah, suffered the same fate. So as a result of all that, the Jews really kind of lost their identity in one sense. They lost their independence. They became subject to foreign powers, and so you read about that. Assyria, Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, eventually Rome just reminding you, no doubt, much of their suffering, especially in Old Testament times, was due to their sin, God's chastisement. But under God's sovereignty and according to His sovereign purpose for His people, Israel also suffered during that same, the same century, suffered as well, constantly and severely at the hands of Satan. And we've already looked at some of Satan's hateful attacks against Israel and and the things he did to uh, attempt to stop the Messiah from being born or then stop the Messiah from living. All that was under God's sovereign control, which means Satan was an instrument used by God even in Israel's suffering. But their purposes were different. God's purpose is going to be repentance and salvation. Satan's purpose is not that, not for the Jewish people. Satan's purpose in causing the Jews to suffer was and is now today and will be in the future to bring them to destruction, to bring them to death. Therefore, Even after Scripture was completed and you read about the things that happened to Israel there, you keep following human history and you find the story of their suffering and their their persecution from others tragically continuing. The last 2,000 years, that's been the story. The Jewish people have experienced a steady dose of prejudice and racism and persecution, even attempts to wipe them out. The MacArthur Commentary really provides a good summary of human history of the last couple of thousand years. I'll, I'll, the summary's there. I'll summarize that summary. You can look at the first crusade in Europe. This is like 1095 to 1099 those years. Uh, persecution was very evident. The crusaders were making their way across uh, Europe to the Holy Land, to Palestine, And as they went, they specifically destroyed Jewish homes, Jewish villages, massacred their inhabitants. When they finally arrived there in what we call the Holy Land, they arrived in Jerusalem. That was right at the end of that first crusade, 1099. The crusaders herded together, rounded up and herded Jerusalem's Jewish population into a synagogue and set it on fire. Most of the Jews perished. Perished. Any that survived that were sold into slavery then. 1290, a couple hundred years later, King Edward I in England banished all Jews out of England. It was another three and a half centuries before they were allowed to come back. France followed suit shortly after that, banishing all the Jews. Spain followed suit, banishing the Jews, ironically, in the year 1492. Anything else come to mind about that date? I mean, if you, didn't, if you didn't learn any other dates in school, you learned that one, right? 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue or something like that. Well, there's something else going on in Spain where he came from. Persecution of the Jews. The Middle Ages, throughout the Middle Ages, whenever there would be a natural disaster the Jews were blamed for it, the Black Death, they were blamed for that, and they'd be savagely persecuted. Fast forward to the 19th century, there was... Um, quite a bit of of racism against the Jews, uh, anti-Semitism, a breakout of that in Russia in the late 1800s. Their czar, Tsar Alexander II, was assassinated, so they, they blamed the Jews for that. In the four decades after that, there were exterminations and persecutions, tens of thousands of Jews killed in Russia hundreds of thousands driven from their homes during Stalin's reign of course Stalin was a was brutal known for killing millions but out of the millions and millions he killed 3 million Jews were killed under Stalin's reign we haven't even got to the 1930s and 1940s yet and those are just some samples so we that's what we're most familiar with right the The rise of the Nazi party in the early 1930s, their racial theories that were mad, just insane, became their policy, their public policy under Adolf Hitler, a lunatic. The Nazis even tried to eliminate the Jews, familiar with the Holocaust. The Nazis sought to implement their final solution, they called it. Six million Jews exterminated. That was more than half the Jewish population of Europe at that time, slaughtered. Pam and I, in 2016, Pam and I visited Auschwitz along with Birkenau. That's the death camp that's just about 1,000 yards down the road, right next door. That's where most of the killings, the gas chamber killings took place in Birkenau, right next door. That was a sobering day to say the least to tour all that stand in the gas chamber to stare at the at the furnaces that trip prompted me to eventually read a, a book called five chimneys a woman survivor's true story of auschwitz that was sobering as well to read that I, i'm just recounting all this because i mean it's all hi- history this, not just uh, centuries of persecution, but go back and add in Satan's efforts all the way through biblical history, it's millennia of savage persecution. So what's amazing is the Jewish people still survive. I mean, it's incredible. Now, obviously, most people likely do hope that the horrors of the Holocaust, Holocaust never happen. I say most people because there are those, those few crazies that are determined that it never happened. So most people do hope something like the Holocaust will never happen. And, and they think we've learned from that. But the reality of it is it is going to happen again. The Bible makes it clear that a time of suffering for Israel is coming in the future that will be worse than anything I've just briefly outlined, anything worse than anything the nation has endured in the past, in the tribulation. Now again, seven-year tribulation, before the Lord comes, a time of judgment upon the earth, God will pour out His fury on the unrepentant, unbelieving world, that will include those who are unrepentant amongst Israel. The second half of it, the great tribulation, the second three and a half years, will be the worst of times then for Israel out of the seven. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 30 verse 7, called it this, it is the time of Jacob's distress. At that time, Satan is going to make his last desperate attempt to prevent Christ from setting up His earthly kingdom, which Christ promised Israel. God promised Israel that kingdom would happen, and God is faithful to His promises. Satan will savagely attack the Jews. He'll seek to destroy Jews that have come to faith in Christ and those who still might come to faith in Christ. That includes the devil doing everything in his power to stop the ministry to uh, to hinder the ministry of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, we studied that back in chapter seven, verse four. He'll do everything within his power to stop the witness of the two, the, two uh, the ministry of the two witnesses that we studied in chapter eleven. This is prophesied in the Old Testament. Daniel foresaw a time that would be uh, tragic for Israel, eventually triumphant for Israel with the kingdom. That's Daniel 12. He saw essentially the same scenario that John reveals in our chapter, Revelation 12, that we've been looking at. This future time of unparalleled distress and persecution and slaughter of Israel. Zechariah tells us in Zechariah 13, verses 8 to 9, that two-thirds of the Jews alive at that time will be killed as God uses Satan to purge the rebels from the nation. Zechariah thirteen eight, 8, I'll read that part. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. That's a prophecy of the, of the time of Jacob's distress. So Satan's going to have a an heyday and finally venting his rage, rage that has built for the centuries rage and hatred of Israel. We can't even imagine how much he hates Israel. Again, what I said in the beginning, if you don't understand that, you missed what the tribulation is all about. But Satan's efforts will not ultimately succeed. His worst fears are going to be realized when, also prophesied in Zechariah, his worst fears are going to be realized when Jews during that period, many of them are going to finally begin to understand and embrace who Jesus is. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David, David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That's Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 13, verse 9. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, Yahweh is my God. It's going to be incredible. We find the New Testament prophesies that. I've referred to this before in Romans chapter 11. A believing remnant, we know it's a third. Believing remnant of Israel will be saved during the tribulation, Romans 11, verse 25. Paul explains that God's not done with Israel yet. So he says in verse 25, Romans 11, a partial hardening has happened to Israel. That's what we're in right now, this hardening, partial hardening, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in but it'll change in the future. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. In other words, all that are able to survive and a good enough portion of them that it represents the nation just as it is written. And here's a prophecy from the Old Testament. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God's not done with them yet. And the kingdom they were promised With Messiah on the throne will be established, and the elect, believing remnant, will enter Messiah's kingdom, the millennial kingdom, along with those resurrected Old Testament saints, believers, they'll awake to everlasting life. Well, anyway, back to what we're looking at, back to Satan's onslaught against the Jews during the tribulation. It will begin initially, I mean, it gets severe in the second half, but it starts to take its form in the first half with the rise to power of Antichrist. And we're, we're going to see in, in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, there are these, these other scenes and vignettes that help us piece some of the puzzle, pieces of the puzzle together. But Antichrist will start to rise to power during the first half of the, of the tribulation, and it will even be Satan working through that to extend his power during that first half. And interestingly, Antichrist during the first half is even going to come to a point where he's going to pose as the protector of the Jews, during the first half of the tribulation, we'll make a covenant of protection with them. But the covenant with Antichrist, and that's mentioned in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that will be made then in the middle of this seven-year period, what's going to happen is his true nature of them will start to be revealed, and he's going to break that covenant and set up in the middle of the tribulation what Scripture calls the abomination of desolation, three and a half years into the tribulation. I'll read some prophecy of it. Daniel 11, verse 31. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Daniel 12, verse 11. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination desolation is set up, there will be then 12, 1,290 days. That's three and a half years. In the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, exalts himself so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, 2 Thessalonians says. All the prophecy of what's going to happen, this abomination of desolation, the covenant he makes with the Jews to trick them, to fool them. It comes out who he really is, so at that point... Antichrist persecution of Israel will also begin to intensify. Satan orchestrating things, it gets worse and worse. That brings us to where we are tonight, verses 13 to 17. We're going to look at three assaults that Satan's forces, his instruments whether it's using Antichrist or the beast or his minions, his demons, the forces of evil, three assaults are outlined here for us that he's going to mount against Israel during the last half of the tribulation when it really gets severe. So here's assault number one. It's verses 13 and 14. Now, what we find in verse 13 before I read it is the reason for Israel's flight. You'll remember we looked at that last time that, that Israel has to escape to the wilderness, a place of protection. Well, the reason was given to us, but now it's given again more explicit. Verse 13. And when the dragon, a symbol for Satan, saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman is Israel, the male child is the Messiah, Jesus. He was thrown down. We looked at that last time, a big battle in heaven, Michael and the holy angels against Satan and his unholy demons. Michael defeated Satan. And the result was Satan was permanently cast out of heaven. He will no longer be able to be there before the throne of God, accusing God's people. And that enraged Satan more than ever, and I commented on this time. There's something else he knows, and that is he only has a short time left to oppose God's people, to oppose God's plans. Chapter 20 tells us he's going to be incarcerated in the abyss. So the combination of knowing that he only has this certain amount of time, his his anger, his hatred of Israel, his rage against being cast out of heaven, that will motivate him to fur- furiously persecute, it says, the woman which is Israel, and that Greek verb persecuted means to pursue something. It means to chase after, to hunt even. But it has this nuance to do that with hostility as the motivation. So it's a, it's a hostile hunt. It's a hostile chase. We find it used elsewhere that way, always with, in the New Testament with hostile intent, Paul used it when he commented on what uh, his time before he came to Christ was like. In Acts chapter 26, verse 11, he was telling them the way he used to be when he hated Christ and hated Christians. Acts 26, verse 11, I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, it's the same Greek verb, chasing them down even to foreign cities. So that's how the verb is used in verse 13 here of chapter 12. It's referring to Satan chasing them down in anger. And that hostility is because the Messiah came from this woman, as indicated in that clause that qualifies things there. You see it, who gave birth to the male child. So Satan will pursue and persecute the Jews. That's his goal. And as we saw in verse 6 last time, you can look back at it, we see it again. Israel is going to flee. This will be a literal escape in the future, an escape that has a parallel in their history. It corresponds to, in other words, the flight from Egypt so many centuries ago. It's like that to the wilderness And we find this escape by Israel referred to by Christ in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. It's a sermon on the end times. And Jesus warned the Jewish people of the desperate danger they're going to face when Satan begins to pursue them, Matthew 24, 15 and 16. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, there it is again, the prophecy of what's going to happen halfway through the tribulation, when that happens... And Christ says, which was spoken of through the Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. He says, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. I don't have time to read it, but in Matthew 24, Christ goes on to say how bad it's going to be. He says there's going to be no time. When that happens, there is no time to go back home and get your iPads and your phones and your computers and your photos and stuff like that. No time to go home and get gatherings, he says, belongings. He also says uh, pregnant women and those nursing infants are going to be especially vulnerable. It's going to be difficult for them to get out of town, to flee quickly. Definitely a severe situation, like a terrifying storm that's just coming down upon them. And the Jews are going to flee, and they're going to be desperate for assistance because they're not going to be able to get food. In God's providence, we find some of this in Matthew 25, God is going to provide for them. There's going to be some people, even individual Gentiles who will... Demonstrate the genuineness of their faith in Christ by helping them, even at risk of their own lives. But in addition to God moving some people to help them as they flee, God himself is going to intervene directly on their behalf. Verse 14, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. That little conjunction is a but, is an important adversative conjunction we call it. It introduces the explanation of how the woman will escape the dragon's anger and hostility. John saw this in his vision, two wings of a great eagle. That's figurative language that symbolically depicts Israel's escape from her flight from Satan's assault. Eagle is an interesting term. It actually just means big bird. It's the same word used for vulture. You find it in Matthew 24, 28, used that way, that uh, there's a statement that says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Same word. It's a big bird. And the point of this bird is it has a huge wingspan. And that kind of imagery uh, is found in Scripture, wings uh, being used to symbolize strength, being used to symbolize speed. One verse in the Old Testament we're very familiar with Isaiah 40, verse 31, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. Remember that verse? It's so poetic. I hate to tell you, it really just says wings like big bird. It doesn't sound as good, you know, but it's a big bird, a large bird. They'll mount up with wings like eagles, like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They'll walk and not become weary. There's wings symbolizing the idea of strength and, and uh, speed even. Psalm 18, verse 10, He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. So there it's not a, an eagle or a bird. It's the wings of the wind. So wings is used in Scripture to symbolize that. That's here. in our. That's part of the meaning. Most commonly, though, wings is used to speak of protection. Again, you find examples in Scripture. Exodus 19, verse 4. God says, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I protected you. Deuteronomy 32, 11, Like an eagle that, eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spreads his wings. God, he. He spreads his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. Psalm 17 Verse 8, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1, in the shadow of your wings I'll take refuge. There's that, see, that clear idea of protection. Psalm 61, 4, let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. On and on it goes. Psalm 91, we're even told, under his wings, you, you can seek refuge. So you get the picture, this enormous wingspan serves as a symbol, a fitting symbol for God's protection and sheltering of Israel during this flight. And look at the verb, we're given. That's in the passive form, and that just confirms it's God granting them this protection for His own purposes. That's why the dragon does not succeed. The dragon is no match for God-given strength here the verse goes on, verse 14, to make it clear the results of this sheltering. They will enable her to escape to her place of protection. Verse 14, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place. This is a a literal trip from Jerusalem, like I said, into the wilderness. Now, I've mentioned it before, but here it is again. We, We don't know the precise location of it. Scripture doesn't say this precise location where These Jews that are alive at that time will flee for refuge. Even the term wilderness doesn't tell us exactly. We we know how it's used in Scripture. It's a general term, actually, for the desolate area on the east side of Jerusalem. That's how it's used. So it's over there, east of Jerusalem. John the Baptist came out of there. Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching John 11, Jesus took refuge there. He no longer wanted to walk publicly among the Jews, it says in John 11. It says he went away from there to a country near the wilderness. It's over on the east side, a desolate area of Jerusalem. So we can confirm that wherever this place of refuge is, it's not near the sea, it's not a coastal plain area, it's not south, it's not the desert area, a flat desert area. It's the mountainous region east of Jerusalem somewhere. And in that place of safety and refuge, Israel is going to be fed by God. Verse 14 says, where she was nourished. That'll be critical. I mean, some people had to help them even flee. But it's critical when they get there. Especially look ahead at chapter 13, verse 17. They're going to need help for this reason as well. No one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. We'll talk more about that then, but Israel is going to be cut off from the world system of buying and selling, unable to do that. And so God is going to supernaturally supply them with food. Has He ever done that before when Jews were in the wilderness anywhere? I mean, come on, he did it once. It's not a big deal. He provided for their ancestors back in the wilderness centuries ago with manna and quail, manna burgers and manna and manna bread and all that. I don't know if you've heard that song or not. It's a great song. He fed Elijah, First Kings 17, when he was at the brook. Supplied him with food. So God can do this. So we're not given the exact location, but we are given the duration of the hiding. And the duration of God's provision, it tells you, verse 14, for a time and times and a half a time. We explained that before in Revelation. Time, times plural, time is a year, times plural, two years, half a time, half a year, three and a half years. The second half of the tribulation. And so time here is, is the term kairos in Greek. It's the word for a season or a period of time. And Daniel predicted that. Daniel 7 verse 25. He'll speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. That's what the evil side's doing. And they will be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. Daniel 12, verse 7, it would be for a time, times, and half a time. So that's a phrase, three and a half years, a phrase that refers to the second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation. We we find the same period depicted sometimes in months. If you look back at 11, chapter 11, verse 2, we've already seen it there. They will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months, the same way of measuring this. Look ahead to chapter 13, verse 5. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. So you find it listed at time, times, and half a time. That's in years. You find it uh, designated as months. You also find it designated as a certain number of days. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. they will prophesy for 1,260 days. We saw it in our chapter, chapter 12, verse 6. 1,260 days. All of that referring to the same kind of measurement, how things are measured. So this one is the last half of the tribulation, the dragon's last fleeing. This is how long the woman is going to receive shelter, it says, from the presence of the serpent, verse 14. Another symbol for Satan. Satan may actually know where the Jews are. We don't know the location just reading the text. He may very well know where they are. But he's unable to do anything. He's unable to get to them because of God's divine protection. All of that is assault number one. He's frustrated by his defeat. So he launches a second attack. Here's the assault number two, verses 15 and 16. The second assault is going to find Satan resorting to different tactics. Verse 15. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. We know the serpent is symbolic, it's not an actual snake. Symbolic representation of Satan. So it's likely here that this is symbolic as well when he says water and river out of his mouth symbolic. There's a point. The attack is going to be like a flood that overcomes someone. So just like wings is consistently used in Scripture a certain way, so is this idea of floods. You find floods in Scripture symbolizing trouble in general. Sometimes it says it like this, 2 Samuel 22 verse 5, for the waves of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction overwhelm me. Psalm 69, the psalmist prays, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. He wasn't literally drowning, but the waters, the flood of the the trouble. I've sunk deep in the mire. I've come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I'm going to sink. Psalm 124. Psalm 124 says, Had not the Lord who been on our side, verse 5 says, Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Psalm 144 is a prayer, deliver me from out of great waters, Lord. You can pray like that when you're in times of trouble. It feels like a flood, overwhelming. So it's used that way in general of trouble. We find it used that way in Scripture, flooding of an army coming in, an attack. Jeremiah 46, Egypt. It's pictured that way. Egypt rises like the Nile, even like the rivers of water surge about. Egypt's like a flood going to come upon them. Jeremiah 47 refers to the Philistines that way. God warns them and says about the, about the Philistines coming. Behold, waters are going to rise from the north and become an overflowing tor- torrent and overflow the land. The enemy It's more that second idea, how flood pictures armies and attack, that's the nuance here. That's what it's going to feel like to Israel. Verse 15, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. He doesn't tell us specifically how it's all going to happen, but he's going to seek to cause Israel to be destroyed. Just a comment, by the way, I mean, some... Some hold the view that it, that it is literal water. Somehow Satan's going to do that. I mean, so you ask the question, could Satan use literal water in, his, in some way? Yes. One reason is because we already know during the tribulation there's going to be cataclysmic earthquakes and there are underground rivers all in Asia Minor. So, yeah, I mean, that could release great volumes of water that Satan somehow directs toward Israel's hiding spot, but it's more likely cause of all the symbolism referring to ways, just various ways he's going to keep seeking to assault her and flood her with his rage and his frustration and destroy her. Regardless of what it is, the bigger point is clear. God sheltered Israel from that initial assault, and God's going to defeat second in, Satan in the second assault, no matter what form it takes. So in verse 16, there's another supernatural provision that will protect the woman from this new threat in a dramatic fashion. Verse 16, but the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up his mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Reminds us of God's destruction of Pharaoh's army when Israel was on the way to the wilderness. There it was, literal water. Exodus 15, verse 12. They praise the Lord, you stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. The the waters just drowned them all. So yeah, it could refer to something literally involving water flooding them and then the water being swallowed up by the earth along with all the evil forces. But it doesn't have to be literal water for the imagery to make sense because there is another Old Testament parallel that can come to mind here if we think about it. The dramatic story of Korah. Dathan and Abiram, remember that? They rebelled against Moses and God, yeah, swallowed them up. Shocking fashion. I'll read it. Number 16, 31 and following. The ground that was under them split open and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up and their households. Sometimes I think about ways I don't want to die and this is one of them, just so you'll know. <laughs> it's on my list you know, (laughs) being swallowed up, and their households all swallowed up, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, the realm of the dead, buried alive, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So yeah, we have the picture of the Egyptian army being drowned literally, but we have this picture too symbolically of the ground opening them up. So it may very well be that one of the frequent earthquakes that's going to happen during the tribulation is going to cause the ground to split open under God's direction and it swallows much of Satan's forces. Whatever the symbolic language picture is, the main point again is that God forts him. So now, even more frustrated, even more enraged by his inability to pull this off, to destroy Israel, he will turn his fury toward new targets. Assault number three, verse 17. So the dragon was, and again, remember, this is put in past tense form because John is allowed to see the vision of what it's going to be as if it's already happened. So the dragon was enraged with the woman as if he wasn't already and went off to make war with the rest of her children. Now, we've already seen back in verse 5, the dragon had to redirect his anger from the son to the woman because the son, he hated Christ, but the son escaped in the sense we talked about the ascension. He went to heaven. So, none of Satan's efforts to keep Messiah from being born, Messiah from living, Messiah from going to the cross. The resurrection happened after that, ascended to glory. So, he turns attention to the woman, and that increased his rage. Like I said, then he got kicked out of heaven. He was defeated by Michael, angered him even more. So, now that the woman has escaped to a place of refuge, and God keeps thwarting the attempts. Satan is left with only the woman's remaining seed. What it says, the rest of her children to vent his fury on. There's disagreement over whom do these represent. A couple of good possibilities. The, some have identified the rest of her children that he's going to make war against to be those 144,000 Jewish evangelists that we studied in. Chapter 7, I mean, they didn't escape. They're witnessing. They're of Jewish lineage. They're going to have the great distinction, the great role of being active witnesses throughout the world during the last three and a half years of the, of the Great Tribulation before Christ returns. That's an opportunity not granted to the rest of the Jews, this 144,000. And that aggressive witness is no doubt going to anger the dragon and his beasts. So it could make sense that now he forgets the, the ones hiding in the wilderness and goes after the 144,000. That would fit the rest of her children. On the other hand, we know that according to Galatians 3, verse 7, there is a, a sense in which we can call even Gentile believers uh, sons of Abraham. Galatians 3, 7 puts it that way. We're sons of Abraham because of our faith. We follow in his footsteps that way. Some believe it's he's turning his attention to Christians who are there. I think really the best view is sort of the all-inclusive view that it's it's all who are naming the name of Jesus. He he leaves Israel alone and whoever's naming the name of Jesus, the 144,000 Any other Jews who didn't make it with their fellow Israelites to the hiding place that that believe now? Gentiles who come to Christ, it's the ones who are left that are God's people in some way, and so He goes after them. They are described for us a little bit more in verse 17. It says, they're the ones who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That term translated commandments is a word frequently in John's writings especially. So John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. He loves to use this word. You'll see it ahead in Revelation chapter 14 verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is an evidence of somebody's a true believer. They keep the commandments and they persevere in that. They're not perfect in it, but they keep seeking to obey God's commandments. Christ has used that word many times in our study of John. John chapter 14, verse 15, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So these people that he's going after, they're commandment keepers. They, they love God and they're seeking to obey him. They also hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's not testimony about Jesus. It means the testimony that Jesus gave, the truths that Jesus taught as revealed in in the New Testament. So really both phrases together mean that these persecuted believers now in assault number three are giving evidence to their, their faith, their salvation by their obedience to the truth So, unable to reach the woman, Satan is going to call all the wicked cohorts that are left into action into this third assault. And again, he's going to fail. All of Satan's efforts to prevent what's going to come, the Lord's second coming, and then the fulfillment of the promise of the kingdom and the Messiah sitting on Israel's throne, all those attempts are going to fail the Lord will triumph. He will reign on earth, and the surviving tribulation saints, both Jews and Gentiles, will enter that earthly kingdom. Again, look back to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. This is this pause, this long pause, because the seventh trumpet of judgment is sounded, and that's going to unfold the bold judgments that are kept inside the In a sense, the seventh trumpet, the seventh seal with the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. I know it's kind of complicated, but it's the significance, again, of what's said in chapter 11, verse 15, when it sounded. The seventh angel sounded. All right, this is the introduction of the final set of judgments, the the bowl judgments. And it's going to be terrible for Israel. But they're rejoicing in heaven because they know what it means. God is not going to stop His purposes from happening. And so loud voices in heaven were saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Sort of a little preliminary version of, you know, Handel's Messiah and the hell of course there. There's triumph after all this tragedy that we just looked at so just to summarize it for the long-suffering people of Israel God's chosen nation they have experienced so much so many dark hours along the way and what scripture is saying is their darkest hour still lies ahead but it's going to be followed by glorious victory. And the nation of Israel, having survived the most savage persecution in their long history, there is this elect remnant of them that is going to finally believe the truth about Jesus and be saved. And they're going to enjoy the bliss of the millennial kingdom. Well, more to fill in the gaps here in chapter 13 and 14 and stuff that's going on in the midst of all this. And But now you've had a review of the significance of Israel and God's plan, not just in the past, but in the future. That's the right view of Israel. Just one implication, really, uh, that stands out to me and you can probably... Tell me later, there's others. If I thought harder, maybe I'd have come up with more. But it's this one point about that the ones who are genuine believers, like chapter 14, verse 12 says, the perseverance here is the perseverance of the saints. Persevering in what? keeping the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus, okay? There's the bottom line evidence of true believers. And people struggle with that, you know, trying to determine what's going on with people they love, and I get that. Our, our family does the same thing. Sit down with somebody today, just thinking through that about a, about a loved one, no evidence of genuine love for Jesus and faith in Him that's persevering, though there's been some troubles along the way and mistreatment and injustice and whatever. Yeah, but what about Jesus? And no real evidence of the truth of Scripture and God's Word really means something that, yes, there's a lot of sinners out there and I'm a sinner, but this is God's Word and we need to know it and love it and seek to obey it with all of our heart. There's no evidence of that. So my implication is really this has not changed. Still today, we give proof we are Jesus' followers, ultimately by our obedience. And it's measured. It's not perfect. But it's the bent of our heart. So I'll just leave you with five of those statements that are in John's writings, just John's writings. John 14, 21 he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. 1 John, first Epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I've come to know Him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. There's the union. Lastly, 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God, we love God's people, when we love God and observe his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. That's the bottom line. They're really not. We're better off when we seek to live a life that pleases the Lord and we obey him. let's pray together. Father, we're reminded again that you're the victorious God, the one who has determined in your own eternal mind your purposes for history. You existed before history, before time as we know it existed. You stepped into time. You've operated in time. There'll come a time where there is no more time the way we know it, and you're in time and out of time, all at the same time, as the eternal, ever-present I am God. So, of course, your purposes will come to pass. This is who you are. Of course, Satan, a, a, a created being, cannot stand against you. So, Lord, help us to remember that when we go through the trials of life, some of which certainly are due to Satan stirring up things in this world. Help us to remember that greater is the one that's in us than the one that's in the world doing all of that. Greater is Christ in us and the Spirit in us and truth in us than all the ones who follow Satan's ways in this world. We don't have to fear them. So help us not to be anxious about the things that go on around us. It's all part of your unfolding providence. And even when it gets worse... During this time in the future, we don't know when this is, but you have it set in your timetable. We pray even now for those saints that you will strengthen them to do exactly what your Scripture says, to persevere in their testimony of their lives for their love of Jesus and faith in Him and desire to be obedient to you. Lord, help us with that. Strengthen us for that task now. We love Your Word. We love Your commandments. How blessed is the man who meditates on the truth and loves it and seeks to live by it, not out of a legalistic sort of rote way, but out of a warmed heart that understands the gospel and has come to realize their sinfulness and the truth about who they are and has fled to Christ to rest in Him alone to find shelter in him. Lord, may we obey you with great joy. In our Savior's name, amen.